Good to see all of you. Uh, how many of you guys drove or rode in a car to church this morning? Okay, a lot. And then how many of you guys wore a seatbelt while you were in that car? Oh, good. Almost everybody. Um, I'm gl- glad to hear it. Uh, I-, I ask not because the-, the point of my sermon is not to make you wear your seatbelts, but um, although I hope that you do, my point is you wore a seatbelt in the car this morning. Well, there might be a couple reasons. One is you just do it without thinking, right? But the reason we do it in the first place is because we believe in protecting that which is important, right? So like your life and your health are important, and you know that every time you're getting in the car, there's a risk that something bad could happen. And so you're taking a precaution to protect something that's really precious, which is your life. It's precious to you, and it's precious to a lot of people around you. And, and just like you take precautions to protect uh, your life that's important when you get in the car, we as a church have a responsibility to protect that which is important to Jesus. And we're going to be wrapping up our sermon, uh, sermon series in Romans this week. It feels kind of weird. There's, uh, we've been in Romans this entire school year. I'm going to miss uh, preaching through this awesome book. Uh, but as we come to the end of it here, that's really what we're going to be talking about is this idea of protecting the church. This beautiful church that Jesus bought with his blood, um, that he has brought together to himself and with each other. Right? So I told you... We started this series that really like kind of the thesis, the main idea of Romans is about the gospel. And it's this idea that the gospel has the power to save the Jew first and also the Greek. And what that means is that the gospel has the power to fix this broken relationship that we have with God. God is holy and good and perfect. We are sinful and our sin has separated us from him. But when Jesus came, he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins so that that which was standing in the way between us and God and separating us from him was washed away by the blood of Christ and that we could be brought together with God. And so it's unifying in that sense. And not only does it unify us with him, but it unifies us with each other. Why? Because we are brought together into one family of God. And that's really like pretty much the whole book of Romans has been rotating around those ideas. How we're saved by God's grace through Christ and brought together with him. And because of that, we are brought together into one family that we call the church. And the church is precious to God. Jesus cares a lot about his church. And he cares a lot about the way that we love each other. Okay? Uh, Most parents that have multiple kids, they say one of the things that's most important to them is that all of their kids get along with with each other. And love each other well, okay? So if you have siblings, make your parents happy and love them well. Um, But for us as a spiritual family, we are all siblings with each other. And it's important that we love each other well. This unified church brought together with God and with each other is extremely important to Jesus. So much so that it's actually one of the major things that he prayed for shortly before he was crucified. This is Palm Sunday, by the way. I don't know how many of you guys care about liturgical calendars, but it's Palm Sunday, uh, which means it's the Sunday before Easter. And uh, so we kind of think back to this last week of Jesus' life before he was crucified. We get a lot of material on that in the Gospels. And one of the things that we get is this awesome prayer in John 17. And Jesus prayed this. He actually prayed for you specifically. Look at this in John 17, 20 to 23. After praying for his disciples, he said this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you. 
that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. How cool is that? Jesus is praying for you specifically, right? Not just for his disciples, he's for those that would believe on account of their word. You and I believe because of the testimony of the disciples and all the people that have passed that down. And Jesus' prayer is that we would be one, united in him and united with each other. And if this is important to Jesus, it should be important to us. And what do we do with things that are important? We protect them, right? That's why you wore your seatbelt in the car this morning. So, Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our main passage uh, to wrap up Romans uh, as we get in this idea of protecting God's church. Lord, uh, we love you, and we just thank you so much for the fact that you have made us your church, that we're precious to you. God, we thank you that you care about us enough uh, to save us, enough to, to remove the gap that stood between us and bring us close to you and close to each other. We thank you for that. And God, we just pray that we would be people that like really live in that unity. That we'd look out for each other. That we would protect against anything that might come to disrupt that. To harm your church. And to mess with the unity that you've created. So Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Speak through your word. I pray that you'd use me in a way that just honors you. And God, I pray that we'd love you more uh, when we leave this place today than we did when we came in. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Romans chapter 16. It's the last uh, chapter. And we're going to start at verse 17. Before we get into that, though, just to let you know, uh, we've come to this point where Paul ha- is kind of sending out his greetings to all these people in the church. And he has a ton of different people that he's saying hello to in this letter to the Romans. Uh, and in those greetings, you can actually see that he has a deep love for the people in that church. Which is cool, because it even illustrates the point about how the gospel brings us together to be one family. You can almost kind of feel that familial love that he has for these people that he's writing to. And so after all of that, we come to this in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We'll end there for today. Um, Okay, so we see here in this passage that Paul is urging all of these people in Rome that he loves dearly to protect the church, right? He wants them to protect against both external threats and against internal threats. And when I say external threats, I mean threats to the health of the church that are, are come from those that are not actually part of the church, okay? And then internal threats would be uh, threats that come from people that are actually part of the church, you know, real Christians, Uh, But we'll talk about external threats first. In this passage, I see two sources of external threats that are mentioned. We see Satan that's mentioned in verse 20. 
where there's this idea that God is coming to crush him. And then we see also that there are people that cause divisions and put obstacles in our way that are contrary to good teaching. Now, I'm considering these people to be outside the church because even though they might be interacting with people in the church, they may even attend gatherings or go to groups or something like that. The way that Paul describes them makes it seem like they aren't actual Christians, okay? And so when I speak of being in or out of the church, I'm not talking about an organization necessarily. I'm talking about the true family of God, all right? So we're, we're going to come back to these people in a bit, but first I want to talk about Satan, Satan's mentioned second, but I think it makes sense to talk about him first because he's impacting the people that are causing the division. Now, we may not like this reality, but the Bible is actually very clear about the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual war, okay? Now, I know like as 21st century rational thinking Americans, sometimes having a spiritual worldview can actually be kind of challenging, all right? I am a more cerebral person. I, I, I like to use my senses. I like to evaluate facts and evidence and data. And I do think a lot of that points to the reality of the spiritual. But I'll just be honest. A lot of the time, uh, the, the spiritual realm is not at the forefront of my mind. But if you read your Bible a lot, you'll see that it's actually pointed out to you consistently. And, and Satan is not used as a metaphor or a trope or something like that. He's referred to as a real entity in the scriptures. 1 Peter 5.8 says, uh, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have an enemy that is looking to devour us. Okay, now this is a, a spiritual enemy. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to come and actually physically attack you. I don't think that Satan's activity usually looks like something out of the exorcist. Now, I'm I'm not ruling that out. I've heard some crazy stories about things that can happen, and, and, and I think that, that can take place, but by and large, um, I would say that the spiritual battle that we are in usually takes place in our minds. That is by far and away the primary battlefield in this spiritual realm. This might be the thoughts and doubts that simply come into your head that come out of nowhere. I don't know any Christian that's been following Jesus for a long period of time that hasn't gone through some sort of season or seasons where they're plagued with doubts, fears, or sinful desires at various points. And you know, Paul shed some light on this spiritual battle in one of his other letters he wrote. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Look at the language of this passage. Paul's saying, you know what, we, we don't wage war uh, with the weapons of this, war, uh, of this world, right? Like you don't need to go out and stock up on guns and ammo or anything like that if you want to be successful in this spiritual war. If you want to be successful in this spiritual war, you need to know how to fight the battle in your mind, right? Like this, that's what he says here. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. There is a spiritual war that is going on and the battlefield is your mind. And, you know, I, I think that one of the ways that Satan tries to get at our minds is sometimes that stuff where it's like, man, I don't even know, like, where that came from, where these, 
these doubts or, or sinful desires, anything are coming from. I think sometimes there's maybe some aspect of direct temptation that can come. But sometimes this battlefield in our minds, uh, Satan engages with it actually through people that are under his influence. And once again, I don't want you to think about this in terms of like exorcist, people crawling up walls and having their heads spin around. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about people that ultimately are doing the will of Satan, not because they're practicing strange rituals or anything else, but ultimately because they're setting themselves up as gods in opposition to God, right? Like, that's really what Satan is doing. So, so when you're in line with Satan, it doesn't mean that you're, like, holding seances in your basement or something like that, necessarily. It means that you're in line, and it, it, you have aligned yourself with a rebellion against God, where you say, God's not going to be king, I am. That, that's where you're actually operating in line with Satan, right? And so, um, Paul... Uh, T- tells one of his disciples, Timothy, in a letter he wrote to him about uh, how to deal with people actually that, that are in this situation um, where they're actually being used by the devil. Look at this, 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will, right? Opponents to the gospel, Paul is instructing Timothy, he's like, hey, they're actually captives in this war, okay? We, we have a, a real enemy that's the devil, the one that's prowling around like a roaring lion, but he employs many others, many people that God loves actually and wants to rescue as captives that are doing his will. And, and sometimes that comes in the form of false teachers, people that, that are promoting ideas that are contrary to the gospel, okay? And this is, a, this is a brilliant strategy, and it's used a lot, and it's actually warned extensively, uh, we're warned extensively in the Old Testament, sorry, in the New Testament about false teachers, okay? Just look, look at some of these passages, Jesus warning us. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, Paul warns us in uh, another place in 1 Timothy. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Jude warns us against false teachers. We never talk about Jude very often. He wrote a very short book, second last book in the Bible. Um, but it, and it's mainly about warning against false teachers. He says this, uh, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Okay, I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. There's lots of scripture that is warning us to watch out for false teachers. Why? Going back to this idea that Jesus cares about protecting that which is important to him. Jesus loves his church, and false teachers are a threat to his church. 
And that is why he consistently, he told us, Paul told us, Jude told us, we, we, we can see these warnings all over the place about, hey, you need to realize that th- these people are there. They're out there and you need to keep an eye out. Sometimes these false teachers are obvious, right? Like sometimes they're, they're going to be spreading things that's just like straight up contrary to the gospel, right? Like atheism or something. Right? Someone saying there is no God or Jesus wasn't real or something like that. Like that's obviously contrary to the gospel, okay? Uh, other religions that have um, aspects that are just very clearly in opposition to Christianity. Islam, for example, right, has a very, very different view of Jesus than the one that the Bible uh, paints for us. A very different view about what he came to do and what he accomplished. Uh, things like that, they're, they're pretty easy for us to notice. But sometimes they're not as obvious, right? Like Jude says that false teachers, when, when he wrote his uh, passage, he said that they secretly slipped in among you. Or Jesus, when he says, uh, watch out for false prophets, he says that they're wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. Okay, what are these things teaching us? They're teaching us uh, that, that sometimes false teaching isn't like always, it doesn't always come flashing in red lights, blaring horns, and letting you know that it's wrong. And if Satan wants to harm the church of God, one of the things that he might do is actually try and slip someone in behind enemy lines to cause chaos. Okay, that, I mean, that, that's a brilliant strategy. A little aside for history, um, I study a lot of history, and one of the things, Russian history in particular, and uh, one of the things that's interesting, one of the ways that Germany beat Russia in World War I, and I know Germany lost World War I, but Russia actually surrendered before the war was over, and uh, what they did is Lenin uh, was actually in exile in Germany. <laughs> And uh, when Russia was having all sorts of problems on the battlefield, there was some chaos at home, they said, let's ship Lenin back to Russia because they knew that Lenin would go back and stir up trouble. And sure enough, he did. He came back, stirred up trouble, and he started the Marxist revolution. And as his government took over Russia, they pulled Russia out of the war. And so it was a brilliant strategy to actually send someone in behind enemy lines to cause trouble. And, and Jesus is warning us, man, there's people that come in behind enemy lines, wolves in sheep's clothing, that are trying to deceive you. Jude is saying there's people that have tried to slip in unnoticed. All right? And so how, how can we learn to be able to guard against some of these kind of things? What is this? Because these are usually things that might look really close to the gospel, but they're different. And they're usually tainted in one of two ways. The first is, is that it can be tainted by legalism. And this is the idea that you can get into a restored relationship with God by following certain rules, right? This is combated fiercely in Romans chapter 4. If you, if you remember back to that, it was a while ago. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul is really contending for this idea that we are saved by faith. Okay, a lot of the New Testament, pretty much the whole book of Galatians, this is that theme of it. It's fighting against legalism. It's saying, no, you're not saved by, by uh, keeping the Old Testament law. You're not saved by these works that you do. You are saved by your faith. And a lot of the time, you, you might get people that come along and they, they know how to say all the right things. They say, oh yeah, we, we love Jesus. We're into him and we believe in following him and all this kind of stuff. But when you get down to the crux of what they actually believe, they're trusting in legalism. They're trusting in the idea that there is something that you can do to work your way into a right relationship with God. And legalism harms the church because at the end of the day, it looks to self for the answer. Self is at the heart of legalism. It looks to your ability to follow the rules well enough as the key to your place in God's family. 
And when you think about this, it inevitably is going to lead to a divide in the church, right? Between people that are doing it well enough and people that aren't doing it well enough. It robs the gospel of its freeing and unifying power that we have in Christ. And it doesn't actually trust in the need for God to save or in his power to do so. And guys, there, there's a lot of examples of legalism. Um, there, there were these Judaizing teachers in Paul's day. I talked about Galatians. That seems like some of the main people he was writing against, which were people that were saying, oh yeah, Jesus is great. Go ahead and accept him. But also, like, you still have to keep following all these Old Testament laws to be right with God. And, and Paul's saying, no, like, that, that covenant's been done away with. You're saved purely by the grace of God. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, uh, those are both religions that kind of try to wrap themselves up and disguise themselves as Christianity. They would both say that they respect the New Testament, but at the end of the day, they really come down to legalism. Um, And frankly, what I think is is most pervasive is kind of what I would call a Christian version of humanism that a lot of people subscribe to today. Uh, and, And what I get at that is, with humanism, Secular humanism is, is straight up. They would say, we don't believe in a God. We, we believe that man is kind of the highest creature and his happiness and fulfillment is the most important thing in the world. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of people that call themselves Christians functionally are actually humanists. Where it's this idea that my happiness and my fulfillment is really what's most important and I believe in being a good person in the process. Okay? But, but at, the, at the end of the day, like you are trusting that you can get to God by being some sort of a good person in your life is really about you achieving that goodness and fulfillment. Um, when I talk to a lot of Christians, uh, that people that say they're Christians on campus, and I ask about uh, getting to heaven, the, the predominant answer I get is actually by being a good person. That's not gospel. Like, that's not what the gospel teaches. You do not go to heaven by being a good person. You, you go to heaven by being forgiven of your sins because of your faith in Christ. Okay, and so when I talk about this idea of, of um, sometimes there, there's even wolves in sheep's clothing, there's people amongst us that are actually promoting ideas that are contrary to the gospel. And I think we have a lot of that in our culture. Now, the, the other side of this sometimes where we can miss on the gospel is with license. And this is the idea that because you're given a restored relationship with God by grace, you can simply go on and sin as much as you want to. It's essentially the idea that what you do doesn't matter, so live it up because you have the freedom to do so. And this is also combated fiercely in Romans, as Paul has walked us through the real gospel. Romans 6, 1-2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? All right, the passage that I read for you from Jude earlier, it was getting at this same kind of thing where he's saying there's some people that have slipped in among you and they're trying to deceive you and make you uh, think that, that you don't need to live holy lives. And if we, if we go towards license, then we're also missing what the, the gospel is actually calling us to. And we don't really understand how terrible sin is. We don't understand its destruction. And we don't understand the lordship of Jesus in our lives. You know, License harms the church because it allows sin to fester, which is the very thing that separated us from God in the first place. Sin hinders our ability to connect well with God and experience the abundant life that he wants us to have. It also causes division because it inevitably harms those that are around us. Because sin is naturally destructive. It is the nature of sin to rob life. 
And if we allow that to continue in our lives and in our community, it will, it will hinder our lives and the life of our community. And so the, the predominant example of license that I see was just something I guess I'd phrase as like lukewarm Christianity. Right? It's this idea that, oh yeah, I, I say that I believe the gospel and I prayed for, to receive Jesus at church camp for something, but the reality is my life actually has no evidence whatsoever of any kind of fruit following Jesus, no evidence of actually denying myself, no evidence of actually trying to walk in holiness. It's a verbal affirmation of the lordship of Christ, but no real evidence of it in thought or behavior. You know, there are a lot of false doctrines for us to watch out for, but at the heart of false teaching, honestly, is selfishness. When one puts their own thoughts and their own desires above Christ, there's no end to the number of false doctrines that people can come up with, because at that point, they become their own God. And this is what Paul says here in Romans 16, 18, talking about these teachers. He says, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And when we serve our own appetite, who knows what kind of false gospel we might come up with. But if your Christianity is about serving your own appetites, you're not serving Jesus. And if you're not serving Jesus, then honestly, in some ways, you're a threat to his precious church that he cares about. You know, there's a lot of false gospels, and sometimes they can be presented in ways that are really persuasive. And this is why we're warned about this. He says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, notice that the ones who are most likely to be deceived are the naive. Naive refers to a person that lacks wisdom, experience, or judgment. And there's, there's so many false gospels out there. We don't know specifically what kind of teaching Paul's referring to. Paul, Romans is the longest letter that we have in the Bible, and we actually don't see Paul directly combating any uh, specific group of false teachers. We kind of just see this here at the end where he's warning us about it. So I don't know if there was a problem that was going on in Rome or if he's just saying, hey, I've preached enough places and talked to enough people that I know you're going to run into this kind of stuff. So I just want you to be ready for it in general. But I can tell you that the best way we can just in general be ready to combat false teaching is by knowing the real thing really well. Right? Like th this is how you learn to uh, spot like counterfeit dollar bills and stuff. The people that are able to best spot a counterfeit are the people that know what the real thing looks like really, really well. And so I could stand up here and I, I could preach for the next year every single Sunday about some sort of different false heresy or gospel or something like that. But I think what's, what I'd rather do and what I think is better for the church is for us to just know the real gospel really, really well. Because as we do that, it will prepare us to be able to spot anything that's contrary to that. And if we want to be people that aren't naive, that aren't deceived by smooth talk and flattery, then we need to be people that know our Bibles really well. And guys, that's one of my great passions for you as your pastor is to encourage you to read the Word and to know the Word of God. That's part of why we, we try to preach very thoroughly through the Scriptures here. We, I want to lay it out in front of you. That's, that's why your life groups, you know, we're encouraging you to go and, and to get in the Word and discuss it together because we, we need to live on this. Like, one of the ways that, if, if God wants his church to be protected, one of the ways that we can protect ourselves and each other is by knowing him and his word really, really well. So let's say we're doing that, and we've learned what the real gospel is. We know it well. What do we do when we spot that counterfeit bill? 
You know, what do we do when we spot somebody that, that's going around and maybe spreading false ideas or causing divisions or obstacles like Paul is talking about? It's actually a kind of tricky question because there's a few factors to take into account here. Sometimes it's best to just avoid them, right? That's actually at, at this face value what Romans 16 is saying. Um, in Romans 16, 17, at the end there, he says, keep away from them, all right? Now, the, the point here is that these people pose a serious threat to the church, and consequently, it's best to not even give them the opportunity to spread lies. There's a few things I want you to notice about the people he's telling us to keep away from. First off, uh, they're people that have clearly been identified as having bad motives, okay? Right? Like they're, they're coming in, they're not trying to serve Christ, they're trying to serve their selfish desires, and Paul's like, man, I don't even want them to be in a spot where they're going to be able to, to cause harm to other people. And these people are particularly persuasive speech-wise. They're really good. They're good at smooth talking. They're good at flattering. And the goal here is primarily to protect naive people. So the counsel to avoid bad people, uh, to, to avoid the, the false teachers, um, I think is primarily, if, it's, if you're in a spot where it's like, man, I'm kind of in that naive category, or I'm trying to restrict access uh, for the people that are in the naive category. So this might include, like, children, for example. You know, like, I, I, I want to train my child in truth, and, and, and I hope that she'll know the scriptures really well and that kind of thing, but I'm not sending her out to have a debate or something when she's six years old. Like, th there's a certain level of, like, she needs to learn, right? And if you're a baby Christian— you might not have had time to know the scriptures very well yet. And so in that case, it might be better for you to just be in a spot where you're avoiding hearing some of these false doctrines. But there's other times where it's best to engage in discussion with these people. We saw a passage earlier, I'll refresh you on, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This passage was written to Timothy. Timothy was a leader in the church in Ephesus. He knew the gospel really well. He had a strong relationship with the Lord. He knew the scriptures. And so Paul's counsel to Timothy is not to avoid these people. But rather he says, I actually want you to gently instruct them. Why? Because ultimately God still loves the false teacher. Like, God still wants that person ultimately to come to repentance, to not be under, the cap, uh, under captivity with Satan. And so, how do you know, personally, what to do when you engage this? Honestly, I think that you have to be honest about evaluating yourself. How well do I really know the gospel? Do I know the scripture really well to where I'm at a spot more like Timothy, where it's wiser for me to actually go and try to instruct? And to try and engage with people maybe that are, are spreading false ideas and help try to uh, gently instruct them and lead them towards the truth. You know, you also should honestly evaluate the other person. Like, it, it, is this a person that just has really bad, rotten motives? They know exactly what they're doing and they're trying to cause problems? Jesus warned us, don't cast your pearls before pigs. Don't give what's holy to dogs. Like, they'll, they'll turn and eat you. And so sometimes we have to realize that there, there are certain people that it's like, it's not worth us trying to engage with here. And I know that that almost sounds weird or, or hard to hear, uh, but we definitely see that within the scriptural teaching, okay? But, but then there's also people where it's like, man, there might be a door that's open into their heart here. 
to be able to be instructed, to be able to be turned. And, and honestly, I can't give you the answer for what to do in every one of those situations. I think that's where you really need to have a strong relationship with the Lord to know what's the best way for me to react. Should I be in a spot where I remove myself from this situation or should I be in a spot where I'm actually going to try and engage and instruct this person towards the truth? Um, if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to try and help you process some of what that might be. But honestly, it's just like we see both reactions counseled in the scripture. Um, and so I think that there's some situations that call for one and there's some situations that call for the other. We've talked about these external threats to, to God's church. Uh, there's also ways that we can be harmed from the inside, okay? And, and when I say that with the internal threats, I'm not talking about like wolves in sheep's clothing, right? I, I actually, I'm actually counting that as external, even though they might be in our, in our meetings or something, they're not actually part of the real church. But there's even times where those that are part of the real church can actually do damage to this precious church that God loves, Paul wrote this in Romans 16, 19. He said, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. You see, the Romans were actually doing a great job of living lives that were pleasing to the Lord, and he wants them to keep it up. He says, be wise about what is good. How is it that you get wise about something? Usually it comes through experience. Right? This is why people say that old people are wise <laughs> about life. They have a lot, they've been through a lot of life. L we're supposed to be people that are wise about what is good. Let's be people that are so acquainted and so experienced with what's good that we're wise in it. And we're also supposed to be innocent about what is evil. You're innocent in regard to something when you have no experience with it, right? You're totally innocent of a crime. You had nothing to do with it. You were totally uninvolved. That's how we want to be towards what is evil. And it's so important that we're innocent about what is evil if we want to be the righteously unified church that God wants us to be because sin in our own lives can tear a community apart. It's not just false teachers or people with bad motives that can create divisions and obstacles in the church, but we can do that too when we mistreat one another. Like when we judge one another, we're damaging this precious church that God wants to protect. Like when we gossip about one another, which it can be so easy to fall into, we damage this precious church that God wants to protect. When we're selfish, we divide the church. When we make fun of others, we're dividing the church. Even if we're a part of it, sometimes we can do damage from the inside. And guys, we are bonded together as one family in Christ. You have to realize that your actions affect other people. Right? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, that we're one body. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And you know this in your own body, right? Like, if you broke your arm, you're just generally in pain and you're generally limited, right? Yeah, it's more acute in this area, but your whole body is affected by the, the pain that that thing is going through. And if, if we uh, allow sin to be in our lives, guys, like, we're, we're allowing brokenness to be in our body. Other people, other parts of this body will suffer from your sin, either because you're doing things directly to them, like judging them, or gossiping about them, or, you know, whatever it may be, or maybe you just have, like, hidden sin in your life that you think doesn't really affect anybody else. Maybe it's, like, your pornography problem, or, you know, something like that. The, the, the reality is, guys, like, I still think you're harming the church in that. 
Like, I, I still think that there's something to be said about how, like, you, you are not as healthy as you could and should be to where you would be in a spot to be able to, like, lift up and encourage and help your brothers and sisters. I don't think that we understand just how much we've been bonded together and how much our behavior actually affects other people. If we really want to protect the precious church that God loves so much, we have to watch out not only for harm that others might inflict on us from the outside, but be careful about the harm that we can inflict from the inside, right? And harm from the inside can almost be like a lot worse, right? Like the, the wounds that hurt you most deeply are the ones that you receive from the people that are closest to you, right? Like if, if some stranger on the street insults me, I honestly don't care that much. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. He doesn't know anything about my life. He can say what he wants. It, it doesn't really impact me much emotionally. But if somebody that I really care about even says something a little bit mean to me, like that hurts so much worse. Because I, I, I actually care about that person. I'm bonded together with them. And they have an avenue into my heart that other people don't. And guys, like, like we as a church, we're a family that has an avenue into each other's hearts. We have to if we're going to be healthy. It's actually the only way we can grow together. A, a, a church can't be healthy unless we're vulnerable with each other, until, unless we let each other into our hearts. But as we do that, we are opening ourselves up to the possibility for pain. And man, may we not be people that, that just take that for granted. Let's, let's not trash that gift that we're given as other people open their hearts to us. Because when, when we start to sin against others that have opened their hearts to us, we have the opportunity to do great damage to God's church. Cool thing, though, is that we have the opportunity to strengthen the church when we are wise about what is good. When we encourage each other in strong, sound doctrine that's in line with the teaching of the Bible, we strengthen the church. When our speech is encouraging and uplifting, we strengthen the church. When we forgive others for their failures, we strengthen the church. Right? Like, it's a powerful experience to have grace extended to you. When you messed up, you know that you deserve something bad, you're forgiven. That's a powerful relationship-building moment. And this is exactly what God's done with us. We protect that which is most important to us. And our church family should certainly be important to us because it, was very, very, it is very important to Jesus. He built this church on his blood. Right? Like, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus cares about you enough to build his church by dying for you. And we were brought together with him and with each other, and we now have the responsibility to care for each other and to look out for each other. And here's the good news. Not only are we fighting for each other, to strengthen each other and to protect each other, but he's fighting for us too. Right? Romans 16, 20, for the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I love knowing how the battle's gonna end, right? Like, I, I love the idea that, like, I'm fighting this battle together with you guys, and I've got your back, and you've got my back. But even more than that, like, I love the fact that Jesus has our back, right? Like, that we have a strong and mighty God that is fighting for us. And I honestly think that's one of the other major things that we have seen in Romans is this just enormity of God and how good and big and awesome and powerful he is. 
And this is the God that will crush Satan under our feet. We talked about those external threats and that Satan's ultimately at the, the uh, source of that. Well, as Paul writes to encourage these Romans as he's wrapping up his letter about how things are going to end, the language he uses even kind of like harkens back to something that we were promised in Genesis. Way back when the very first sin happened. God cursed the serpent, Satan. He said this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus is that seed of the woman. And Satan struck his heel, right? Like, like Jesus took blows. He was whipped. He was beaten. He, was, he was, uh, had a crown of thorns stuck on his head. He was nailed to a cross. He bled. He died. He was buried. But he rose again. And as he did that, he's saying, sin, death, all this, it, it can't keep me down. I'm conquering this. And, and honestly, guys, he's the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. He's already proven that he's more powerful. And we're just in this already but not yet. We're in this spot where he's already risen. He's already given us new life. And we're just waiting for that final victory. And so let that be something that encourages us to persevere. Okay? I know that living in in a a spiritual war isn't easy. It's not easy necessarily to, to pick up your cross every single day and to fight this battle that we're in. But if we support each other, we have a much greater chance of success. And if we remember that God is fighting for us and that ultimately victory is his in the end, that's going to help us persevere as well. And on that day, God is going to receive all the glory. He fights for us. He saves us. He protects us. And one day, he will perfect us. But until that day, let's keep fighting. Let's keep looking out for each other. Let's keep protecting this precious church that God cares about so much. Let's pray. Um, God, we love you. And uh, I just thank you that you love your church. I thank you, Lord, that <clears throat> you fight for us. Um, I thank you, God, that you, you call us to fight for each other. I pray, Lord, that you'd uh, make us people that are wise and discerning and uh, that you'd help us to just know the true gospel really well, that we would be able to uh, identify when there's, there's something that's off, God, whether that's uh, people that are teaching something that's overtly contrary to the gospel or whether it's something that's a little bit more deceptive, whether it's coming from wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever it is, God, I pray that you'd give us the ability to spot what is actually true and what is actually false. And God, I, I just ask that uh, you'd give us the ability to help each other with that, to protect each other from, from people that may want to come in and, and disrupt the unity and the life that you give your church. And God, I pray that we would also uh, just be people that, that don't harm one another as you've brought us so closely together, that we'd be people that are wise in what's good uh, and, and that we'd be innocent in what's evil. God, we pray for the, the holiness and the purity of your church. Help us to to keep sin out of our lives and and to stay away from the damage that it can do to us and to others. God, I thank you that you protect what's important. We give you all glory, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.